It's 12.08. This is Jeff Wagner. Glad to have you with us. President Trump announces his decision on the Iran deal at 1 o'clock. We will carry it live, and then we will discuss. Um, all reports suggest that he is going to go ahead and start imposing sanctions, which would suggest that's going to be kind of like the precursor to um, pulling out of the deal. I don't think that's as bad an idea as some people would suggest, but we'll talk about it once we know for sure what the president is going to do. Before we get to our three big things, it, it's not necessarily my favorite story of the day, but it is definitely the weirdest story of the day. Now, last week, we talked about the, this this craze, and I say that crazy craze, that is sweeping the, the nation, where you have people that are wandering around shooting other people with paintball guns. And, and the idea originally was, gee, we want to reduce shootings in the inner city, so we'll have, you know, you know, the gangsters go out, and instead of shooting guns at each other, they'll shoot paintballs at each other. O- okay, that's fine. But that's not how this has morphed into the real world. What's happening is you have a bunch of these idiots that are driving around um, with these paintball guns. They're shooting at innocent people, people who have no idea what's going on. And, I mean, as I argued last week, this is a very, very, not only it's stupid, it is very, very dangerous because what's going to happen is, you know, a car is going to pull up next to somebody who's a concealed carry holder, for example. Two guys are going to lean out with masks on and start shooting what will ultimately be paintballs, but the driver's not going to know. And they're going to return fire and somebody's going to be dead. And that's why, you know, folks who are doing this uh, candidly need to stop doing it. And if they get caught, they need to be prosecuted. All right, well, here's the variation of the paintball thing. And it's actually the Journal Sentinel is reporting this. Franklin Teens, this is the headline, waging squirt gun war in the nude, police say. Franklin, this is the story. When teens in Milwaukee and across the nation are entertaining themselves by performing drive-by paintball attacks, teens in Franklin have started their own squirt gun war, and they are waging it sometimes in the nude. The game, and I have to tell you, as I am sharing this story with you, the image I have in my mind is my late mom, Ann Wagner. And I'm just trying to picture her when I was a teenager. If she would be hearing this, picture your mother's reaction. Grew, picture your mom's reaction if this was you. All right. So here's the story. The game, called Paranoia, involves teams tracking each other across the city and attacking with squirt guns. If someone's clothes get wet, that player is out of the game. All right. Okay, I'm with it so far. If you're not wearing clothes, you can't be eliminated, according to the rules of the game. That's all the motivation some teams need to play naked, according to the Franklin Police Department. In a Facebook post warning citizens about the game, police say paranoia has called multiple caused multiple reports of reckless driving, suspicious persons or vehicles, prowling, trespassing, and public nudity. At 9.57 p.m. on May 1st, police received a call from the 400 block of West Central Avenue about five cars driving around suspiciously, at times blocking the road, according to the department. Two kids were reportedly walking the sidewalk naked. Police made contact with the individuals who were mostly naked and let them off with a warning, according to the records. Okay. At 7.04 a.m. May 4th, before school started, a motorist reported seeing naked kids jumping out of two vehicles. 
That led to nine teens receiving citations for disorderly conduct. Um, the cops say that there are apparently 20 teams of six people. Okay, so that would be 120 people. 120 teenagers roaming around Franklin naked with squirt guns participating in the game. They attack each other based on a bracket system. If the players are clothed, the only safe zones throughout the city are school grounds, school events, places of residence, and employment. But if you are naked, you're in the game for as long as you want. Teens played uh, also played the game last spring, but it did not last into the summer months. If there are any parents of paranoia players reading this, please speak with your kids regarding making good decisions. All right, I am now... I'm trying to picture having that conversation with Ann Wagner. Jeff, I understand. Are are you walking around the streets of Glendale naked with a squirt gun? (laughs) Well, Mom, I I, I just don't. Well, I want to talk to you about making good decisions. That would not be what the conversation would be. I could picture this. I could picture my late mother, who did not use bad words. The line would be, what the blank were you thinking of? You mean to tell me you were walking around semi-naked in a squirt gun? Have you lost your mind? Have I raised a complete and total idiot? Um, I guess this is better. This is better than driving around shooting paintballs at, at people. I, I get it. But only a half step up. Step up. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not this grumpy old guy that says, hey, kids, get off my grass. I like a good prank as well as the next person. And I I was the guy that was all in favor of, you know, going down to Lake Park and, you know, playing the computerized games and the Pokemon games and things like that. I I think that's fun. Walking around um, the village of Franklin naked at 7 o'clock in the morning, blocking traffic and trying to shoot squirt guns at each other, um, to me... I think that's the type of thing that disorderly conduct citations are appropriate for, and maybe a stern talking to as well on top of the, the thing. All right, I, I, one segment very quickly before we get started on the more serious stuff. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Again, I, I'm listening to this story. As I'm reading the story, all I can picture is my mom and my mom's reaction to this, which would not be a very positive one. And I guarantee you, the conversation would not be, gee, counsel your kids about making good decisions. All right. So, if your kid, if this was you, how would your parents react? If this was your kid and you found out he was participating, or she, I guess, I assume it's mostly boys, was participating in this thing where you're roaming around Franklin naked, <laughs> trying to shoot each other with squirt guns before school. What is the conversation that you have with your kid? 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Or what is the conversation that your parents have with you? I am just I'm just laughing. I am just kind of picturing this. And don't, don't even ask me what my father would have said, because I can't get past what my mom would have said. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And again, I, I acknowledge that this is better than shooting paintballs at complete and total strangers, but what, 120 kids, 120 kids in Franklin driving around in various states of undress trying to shoot each other <clears throat> with squirt guns. Bob in Kenosha. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, Jeff, I'm just curious here. I'm listening to this story. I'm hoping you're just saying it's just boys involved. Uh, 
He's like, I'd hate to think there's some girls involved. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go to Franklin on Friday nights enjoying the scenery or well, something. No, I, I think I think it's probably. Well, I mean, I don't know. My my guess is it's probably not a co-ed activity. But I, who can you can you Bob? Can you imagine explaining to your father? You know, you 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 get caught jumping out of a car naked with a squirt gun, and it, can you imagine explaining to him what you were doing naked with that squirt gun? Uh, not my father. My mother was Russian and Norwegian. She would have whomped me. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the call. It, it is. It's kind of, I, I mean, it's just every once in a while there's these things that I'm just, you kind of read the story and you go, what? Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? <laughs> I, 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 got, I got three kids, two boys and a girl. They're, they're, they're grown now or whatever. But if, that ever, if I ever heard of that, I'd say, you know what? Just like I told you, Skinner, it's like, no, we're gonna go. We're gonna go see somebody. You're not right upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what? Right. What? There's something. What? There's not. A, there's, the dots are not connecting. The plugs are not all firing. Something's not correct. Now I understand, Dave. I mean, I remember back in the day when streaking was a craze, and that was always kind of a silly thing to begin with. But but this is. This is taking that streaking craze, and then, then I, I love this story. There's two kids walking naked down the street in Franklin at like 6.30 at night. What? You know? yeah, it's kind of, you know, I mean, there's, there's just, there's somewhere along the line, just there's something not wired. <laughs> right. And there's 100, they say there's six groups of 20, uh, 20 groups of six whole, kids that's apiece. That's even scarier. These yeah. are future leaders. <laughs> well, that's, well, I mean, I guess, well. right, yeah, like it could be. I mean, that I, that's, I guess that's kind of the one where... Okay, if you're if you're getting together to go out and strip naked and take your uh, you know and, and participate in the game, you can kind of look around and say, "Gee, is, is anybody in this crowd? Do they look like they're going to be the next president of the United States?" I just kind of asking that question. I'm getting some texts and people say, "Well, they're they're naked because you can't kill them if they're naked." I understand that. I right, I get it. The reason they're naked is because if if they get shot with the squirt guns, if they get squirted and they're naked, it it's a freebie. It doesn't count. Okay. I understand that. That's still not going to be motivation to have me walking naked down the streets of Franklin. And believe me, that is a public service because my guess is most of these kids, just like most of us, us naked is not a pretty sight. It's 1218. This is Jeff Wagner. When you come back, we get a little bit more serious. Stick around. 1221, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Four more states head to the polls for midterm elections. Will indications of a blue wave continue? Gene Miller has a full recap, 621 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. Actually, the, the more, with all due respect to Gene, the more interesting question about the midterms is that these, these elections, there's primary elections, and um, Donald Trump, President Trump, is, is playing in a couple of these primary elections because a couple of the people running are Republicans who, like Roy Moore in Alabama, have no chance to win. They're, they're, they're kooks, or they've got other baggage that just makes them unelectable. And Trump has learned his lesson, um, recognizing that you know you, Republicans, if, if, if he wants to be able to get nominees through over the next couple of years and maybe avoid impeachment, you know, he, he needs to have Republicans maintain control of the House and especially of the Senate. And so, you know, what he's looking at is a couple of these races, like in West Virginia, there, there's one of the candidates who's running is a former Peabody Coal Company executive who did time for criminal involvement in a mine collapse. And and this guy may very well win the Republican primary. There's three other more mainstream candidates that are running. If he does, just like Roy Moore, you know, Republicans will not pick up that seat in West Virginia. So I think President Trump is now starting to realize that, 
You've got to find candidates who have the ability to win. And, and he's urging his supporters to vote for one of those candidates who can win. It's going to be interesting to see if that, in fact, happens. And we'll know that answer by tomorrow. All right, let's start off our three big things. Um, story number one, I don't know what it is about New York liberal politicians. Remember a few years ago, Elliot Spitzer, who started out as like the, the so-called uh, crime-busting you know, attorney general, then went on to become the governor of the state of New York and then resigned in disgrace because it came out that he had a habit of frequenting four or $5,000 a night, uh, four or $5,000 a night prostitutes out of Washington, D.C., which always raised the question of four or five thousand dollars a night. Really? I mean, I, you kind of say, what do you get for four or five thousand dollars a night? But this is a guy who's the governor of New York and who was a liberal icon and who, you know, many people thought had a chance if the cards fell right to be a, a president of the United States. And he resigns in disgrace, although he's now back as a commentator on, you know, one of the, the talking head networks. But so that was Elliot Spitzer. Well, the, the new Elliot Spitzer was this guy named Eric Schneiderman, who was New York's attorney general. And again, the, the same career trajectory as Elliot Spitzer, liberal lion. Um, he since President Trump took office. He has been very, very aggressive in going after President Trump, who did business in New York, on a variety of, of things. He, he's also been one of these people who, um, you know, wants to take legal action against Harvey Weinstein, wants to, you know, a re- try to arrange greater compensation for his sexual crimes. Um, He's been very, very active and upfront. And again, this is he's a liberal icon. And a lot of people think thought that he was going to be the next governor of of New York. And he was very active in the Me Too movement and you know very identified with feminist causes and all. Well, it, it turns out that sort of like Elliot Spitzer, the guy is a complete and total fraud. The New Yorker runs a story yesterday which talks about that they find four women who are accusing him of various forms of physical abuse. He's divorced, and it appears that he's got really kind of a twisted side. Um, His story is that these various things he does are all consensual. Um, He's into role-playing. These various women who were dated talked about how he was a heavy drinker, he'd get himself liquored up, and then he'd beat them. Essentially, he'd be slapping him, he'd hit him. Um, It was this kind of like domination sort of thing, and it's one woman after another. So the story breaks, and first, you know, they're they're downplaying it, and then four hours later, he ends up resigning from his position. His statement is, while these allegations are unrelated to my professional conduct, while these allegations are unrelated to my professional conduct, I don't know, you're the state attorney general, you're drunk and you're beating women, as part of your role-playing fantasy, I don't know that that's uh, exactly unrelated to your professional conduct. 
or the operations of this office. They will effectively prevent me from leading the office's work at this critical time. I therefore resign my office effective at the close of business on May 8th, 2018. So it's another one of these examples of, of, again, feet of clay. You have somebody who has this public persona. And again, this is the left, the public persona. I'm identifying with the Me Too. Harvey Weinstein is terrible. Donald Trump is terrible. Look at the way he treats women. And then, you know, behind closed doors, this guy has a very, very twisted approach as well. Big story number one, a promising political career on the left comes cratering down in one of the most dramatic fashions ever. Um, I think the his name is Eric Schneiderman. I think he recognized very, very quickly that he was not going to survive this. And I, I guess to the extent you give him any credit at all, three hours after the story breaks, boom, you know, he's history. But again, it shows that you think you know people, and maybe sometimes you, you never really do. Coming up next, a local Uber driver runs afoul of Uber. I'll tell you all about it. We'll discuss. Stick around. It's 1227. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, following a tough loss at home against the Pirates. The Brewers look to get back to their winning ways in an interleague stint with the Cleveland Indians. Hall of Famer Bob Euchre is in the booth. Our coverage starts at 6.05 this evening. It is sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Okay, this is an interesting story. Um, Fox 6 had it. It involves a guy who's an Uber driver. Everybody knows about you know, the, the ride-sharing apps that they have now. you got Uber, you've got Lyft. Um, what happens is... People sign up to drive for them. You, They get to download the app. They decide when they essentially want to work. So they cruise around and, you know, they take calls when you go and you try to, you know, ask for, for a ride. Um, a lot of the busy activity involving Uber and Lyft occurs later in the evening. And, and that's true in Milwaukee and it's true in other places as well. A lot of times you have people who are at bars or whatever driving around. So one of the high demand times tends to be later in the evening. Okay, so here's the story as reported by Fox 6. Um, It began in the early morning hours in Brown Deer. An Uber driver, and they refer to him only by his first name, which is Stan, picks up a passenger. So, all right. From the time he got into my car, he was whispering on the phone, Stan recalled. Stan said the man wanted to make a stop, but he refused. He said something didn't feel right. When Stan arrived at the destination on Bulky Avenue, he said the passenger refused to get out of his car. And, of course, Uber drivers are driving their own vehicle, right? Then Stan heard the man speak something over the phone. He said, the guy, this is the guy who's the passenger, says, okay, I'm here. I need you to come out. You know, let's do this, right? At which point in time, another guy comes out from the house, and Stan thinks, okay, this is it. I'm going to be carjacked. Well, Stan is a concealed carry permit holder. He's a licensed firearms holder. He's got a loaded handgun in his glove box. And once he hears, let's do this, and the other guy comes out, Stan grabs the gun from his glove box. He orders the man out of the Uber, and both men backed away. Stan then immediately drives to the District 4 police station, reports the incident. He also notifies Uber of what happened. Hey, I picked up this guy. I took him home. I think this was a carjacking. Um, I I used my gun, and I thwarted the carjacking. So he sends this to to Uber. Um, Within an hour or two, he gets a note 
from Uber. And the note says, um, you know, we understand based on your report that you were carrying a firearm during an Uber trip. Um, we have decided to deactivate your account effective immediately. In other words, they are firing him. Um, our firearms prohibition policy prohibits riders and their guests as well as the driver from carrying a firearm. You are, so essentially you're, you're fired. Um, you have violated our community safety policy. Um, Uber says our goal is to ensure that everyone has a safe and reliable ride. That's why Uber prohibits riders and drivers from carrying firearms at any, in any kind of vehicle while using our app. Um, anyone who violates this policy may lose access to Uber. Stan tells Channel 6, this is my car. I paid the car note. I paid the insurance. They should not be able to tell me what I do in my car. He says carrying the concealed weapon makes him feel safer while driving for Uber overnight and late nights. He said, this is Milwaukee, and you hear about carjackings, attempted robberies, you know, on a regular basis. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, let let me frame the question in what I think is the proper way. Uber has, I think, a legal right to set its policy. Uber can say no guns in our cars. And if you do have a gun in your car, you're not going to be driving for Uber. I think they have the right to do that. However, let's talk about the larger issue. From your perspective as either an Uber driver or as a passenger, right? Do you would you feel safer knowing that the Uber driver was licensed to carry a firearm? Now, 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Because I have to tell you something. I mean, if if Uber insists on making its drivers go out on the mean streets of the city of Milwaukee, you know, late at night without being armed, or at least having the option to be armed, I think that's something that these drivers need to seriously consider whether they want to drive for Uber in the first place. And as the, from the perspective of somebody who is a rider of an Uber vehicle, I don't, I mean, I, I don't care. I don't care. I mean, as long as the person's had the appropriate background check and all, I don't care if the guy's going to be driving around with a position to protect himself from a situation precisely like this. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should Uber change its policy? Because again, I, I think legally they can, they can put in whatever policy they want in this regard, and if that's their decision, that's fine. But I think this guy is getting a raw deal. The reality is, if he had not had a firearm, he would have been at best a victim of car thief, thar- thievery, maybe carjacking, maybe a physical assault. That's the best-case scenario. And I think it is almost borderline irresponsible for Uber to not give its drivers the option and the ability, as long as they are proceeding legally, to be able to protect themselves. 414-799-1620. I think Uber is dead wrong in this situation. No pun intended. We discuss next. It's 1241. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. John on the north side. John, good afternoon. 
Good afternoon. How are you doing today? I am well, thank you. My note says that you are an Uber driver. You drive for them part-time. I drive for both Lyft and Uber. Okay. I drive primarily for Lyft, but when it's very busy, I drive for Uber. Uh, I agree with the with the action taken by the company because it's clearly stated to be on the platform, you have to follow all the rules, and that is currently one of the rules. Right. However. Yeah, right, that, right, there's the but. Right, I, right. That, that's the rule. He violated it. I'm with you that far. If, yep. If I was able to be legally armed per lift, I definitely would be. Because driving at odd hours, you encounter everything under the sun. Right. Well, and, and, you know, one of the things this guy, I mean, see, I, I, my guess is, John, and it's just a guess, my guess is regardless of what that policy is, there's a lot of Uber and Lyft drivers who are driving around um, armed. <laughs> I, th- that would just be my guess um, and that, that Uber and Lyft never even know about. I mean, the only reason they found out about this is the guy self-reported it after somebody tried to rob him. Yeah, I, I think there should be a change on the platform. I mean, they they just don't want any life. There's a liability issue there, and mm-hmm. you know it's 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 a dicey subject. But you know, a lot of the drivers, the savvy ones in town, they protect themselves. You know, I, I've been doing this for over a year, and you know, in my experience, it's best to. Well, I'm just say it, but it's best to protect yourself. Well, I'm not gonna. Well, yeah, no, 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 John, I get it. Right, yeah. I mean, thanks for call. Right, right. However, you do it. Act. Absolutely, but I mean, you're okay. You're driving around. You get, you get, you know, uh, an assignment or you get a, a a ride. You know, it's one thirty in the morning. I can imagine this guy. You know, the the driver in this particular situation. I mean, it's got all the markings of, like I say, a car theft, a carjacking. You know, maybe something more. In many respects, this driver is the the victim. And I think what Uber did was a gross overreaction. And I'm not saying they don't have the right to do it. That, that's a different question. But I think it was a gross overreaction to fire him. At the very least, they could have, since he self-reported, um, and since he was the victim, he used this gun to stop him from being, again, the victim of a car theft or a carjacking or an assault or whatever, um, to turn around and fire him. Maybe they could have just given him the option and said, you know, let's remind you of our policy with regard to, to firearms and Maybe he would have still tried to do this. Let's see. Uh, Kevin writes, note to Uber. Lots of drivers already carry. I'd rather lose my Uber gig than my life. Making my car a gun-free zone only helps the bad guy. Um, here's the other thing. A number of you are you know, pointing this out. I Here's a text. I think altering their policy would be appropriate. Maybe Uber could tell, notify the customers that the driver is a concealed carry permit holder and may be carrying upon the reservation. Customers who object can choose a different driver. Let the market decide. And I agree. I think I think um, lots and lots of people would make the choice that if you're going to go for that ride, you know, especially late night, you don't mind the fact that the person, you know, has a firearm and is disclosing the fact that they have the firearm. Tony in Milwaukee says, my question is, as a concealed carry holder, are the riders notified that they can't carry while riding with Uber? Because it's not like all the cars have signs on them saying no guns. I, I, I think it's it's in the terms of use on the app. When you go and you, you sign up for Uber in the first place, it, I suspect it says that. But at the same time, you know, the Uber driver, the times I've used Uber, 
you, you go on the app, they say you're three minutes away, Tony pulls up, you get in the back of the car and saying, I'm, I'm going back to the hotel or, or whatever. You don't know that there's searches. Look, and I understand that, that Uber's got the typical sort of knee-jerk reaction about, well, we're concerned with liability. You know, what if something happens? Well, all right. But what about the drivers, though? Don't they have a right or shouldn't they have a right to protect themselves as long as what they are doing is in accordance, you know, with is with the law, um, you know, uh, in accordance with the law. And that that's, of course, you know, the, the caveat there. Tom in West Dallas. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm well, thank hey, you. Um, so, so here's my take on it. Okay, so they're, they're, they can do whatever policy they want. Although, when you look at, and, and I was a taxi cab driver for a while, and I was on the public now, you know, and uh, the, the people that do that place themselves at, at a certain risk. Yep. And they come into contact with people, especially a driver who's carrying money or yep. someone who's carrying tools. So I, I, I think that they should change their policy. Now, I know there's people out there that, that are really kind of scary, even though the state says, hey, here's your permit. But they really shouldn't have one. But, you know, even still, uh, you know, for a responsible concealed carrier, they should be able to defend themselves. The way I see it, it's easier for me to take and be able to defend myself, and they get terminated and have to look for another job because I'm still healthy and alive. Right. Rather than being in a hospital with a back bullet wound. Well, well, which is why my guess is there's lots of Lyft and Uber drivers who, regardless of this policy, are driving around figuring, okay, the worst thing that happens is I defend myself, I lose my job, but I've still got my life. <laughs> now, and I'll take exactly. my, I'll take that. Yeah. Exactly. I, I just, I mean, I guess I, I'm kind of disappointed in Uber for pulling the plug on this guy right away. I mean, first of all, he self-reported. He was the victim in this. You would think there'd be a little bit of sympathy. Gee, we're, gee, we're sorry, you sure. know, you got put in this situation where you were going to be carjacked. Exactly, exactly, yeah. I mean, it's victimizing the victim. No, th- thanks for the call. I, and I, I think this is, I mean, clearly it, it's something to consider, but I, I don't know. I think there's this paranoia about firearms that are out there. And, I, again, I think most rational people don't freak out um, with the knowledge that you've got somebody who's legally allowed to carry a firearm who does, in fact, carry a firearm. And this is, I mean, I, I tell you, from the perspective of these Uber or Lyft drivers, these taxi drivers, they are very much at risk. I mean, delivery drivers, I've talked about that before. I mean, del- delivering pizzas at one thirty in the morning in high-crime areas in Milwaukee, uh, policies notwithstanding, and I understand businesses get to make rules, but, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people who are in that position who would like to carry a firearm, so if they felt it appropriate, they would be able to defend themselves. Brent in Milwaukee. Brent, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hi, Brent. I, I'm a driver for Uber, and I just choose not to go out late night because yeah. of that reason. And it's also, if I'm in an area that I don't like, I don't have to accept a ride. Right. I can also drop off a passenger at any point during the ride if I don't like what they're doing. Right. So. Yeah, of course, If the, in, in this case, I mean, and I don't know if these guys were armed or whatever, but, of course, if the passenger gets in and is armed and the driver's not, I mean, you're you know, you're going to be a victim, or at least there's a good chance. But, right, that is the other option. You just make the decision that I'm I, I'm not going to I'm not going to take rides that are going to certain areas or, you know, after... Well, you don't know where the rides are going, but you know where you're picking people up. Right. I can relocate myself to, right. if I'm in a bad area of town, to a better area before I take rides or oh, reject I, rides. I, I, I guess I didn't realize. I See, I, 
I've I've used Uber and Lyft a bunch, but I've always been with other people who had the app. So you don't you know where you're picking them up, but until you get there, you don't know where you're you going. You don't know huh? where you're going. Correct. Oh, okay. Huh? Didn't know that. See, I, you 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 have informed me on this. So yeah. So if um, huh? Okay, interesting. But regardless, you know where you're picking them up. Thanks for the call. That's an interesting. I guess I thought they knew both sides, but makes sense. Regardless, doesn't change the discussion. I, I think you know the whole situation is. You, you want? I mean, if if this guy. If Stan had, in fact, been the victim, and, and this this had gone like the two perpetrators had planned it to go, you know, that instead of Stan pulling his gun and defending himself and going to the police and reporting this, that they had taken Stan's car or pistol-whipped him, you know, along the way to get the car if he didn't immediately give it up, you wonder what Uber would have done for Stan in that situation. In this case, he's fine, the police are looking for the bad guys, and Uber fires him. Just doesn't seem right. 12.54, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 12.57, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. In just a couple minutes, President Trump is expected to announce that the U.S., if not pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, is going to be imposing sanctions, which would potentially lead to the pullout. We're going to talk. We're going to carry that conference, this statement, and then we'll discuss you know, what that might mean. There's going to be a lot of people, if you watch the network news tonight, are saying, oh, this is going to be the end of the world. I, I, I think there's actually method to the madness, to borrow the cliche, and we'll, but we'll talk about it after we hear exactly what the president has to say. I had a lesson last night. Learned it again. The, the hard, it is amazing how dependent we get on technology nowadays. So, look at last evening, um, one of our friends, it was her birthday, we were having three couples over for a cookout. So I get home about 4 o'clock last night, and my wife is running around the house doing all the stuff she does to get ready for people to, to come over and have the cookout. And, and I go upstairs, and I, I try to get on the computer, no Internet, which has not happened before since we've been in the new house. The Internet service, very, very reliable, and, you know, it's not, it's unusual. And I, I so I go reset that. I, I can't get it. Then I... Then I look, I check the cable. Cable's not working. Okay, so I call Spectrum, and I say, um, you know, is there a power outage in the area? And they say, no, there's not. It's just your house, which is never a good thing that, that you want to hear. But as it turns out, then I start investigating. Well, in where I live, there was like a, a lawn service that was servicing a number of the homes, and, and, and Mo, Larry, and Curly had been like edging the bed, and they cut the cable line into my house. That's what turned out happening. But so they came out. Spectrum was great. Tracy came out at 8.30 this morning, fixed it, so that's fine. But it's just amazing how dependent you are. I've been telling people, I mean, like last night, it, it's like, okay, even though we have people over, you don't have TV. You, you don't have the Internet. My God, you don't have the Internet. It's even like my wife says, I'll oh, put some music on. I said, no, we, we can't play music because it's all through Alexa and Sonos, and it's all wired up the house. If you don't have the wireless Internet, you can't play the music around the house. It is just amazing how dependent you know, we have gotten on the Internet and the wireless stuff and all these things. It's kind of making me think maybe I should find, you know, go dig out that old-fashioned record player and, and, and a couple speakers or something. So you've got some entertainment if that ever happens again. Of course, hopefully the guys that take care of the lawn won't cut the cable a second time. But you never know. It's 1259. When we come back, we're going to hear from the president, and then uh, we're going to talk about his decision on Iran. Later on, also a fascinating story about a can't-miss baseball project prospect who has a very checkered past. Stick around. It's 1259. It's 108. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Like I say, we're awaiting the, the president. He's going to be addressing this Iran deal issue. 
Let, let me give you a little bit of a sort of a Reader's Digest version on this, because I, I understand sometimes when we talk about foreign policy issues, people say, what, what exactly is this? Back in 2015, uh, Barack Obama struck a deal, and Russia, China, and many of our main European allies as well are signatories on, on this deal. Um, it was an agreement with other world powers and Iran. Um, what it said is that Iran would agree to restrictions on their nuclear program. Iran was in the process of developing their nuclear program, and they would agree to restrictions on their nuclear program. Um, those restrictions would essentially allow them to continue to develop nuclear energy, but would supposedly make it impossible to produce a bomb. So that's what Iran was going to be giving up. In exchange for that promise, the U.S. and other world powers would lift most U.S. and international sanctions against the country. So that was the the trade-off, and there were supposed to be rigorous inspections. Now, that's always been part of the problem with this. Israel maintains that Iran is regularly violating this agreement and is, in fact, moving towards becoming a nuclear power. At the same time, Iran is also becoming a, a greater and greater military force in that area, which is scaring the heck out of Israel and also of uh, Saudi Arabia. So that's essentially you know, what the, the deal is. You promise that you're not going to develop a bomb, even though you're going to continue to develop nuclear capabilities, and we'll, we'll let you go. You know, and we'll we will allow the money to start flowing in again to your country. Um, what what I think, and again, we'll we'll hear from the president in just a couple minutes. What the, the speculation is is that he's he's going to say, "Look, this is a bad deal. We're going to be pulling out of this, but we're going to do it over a period of time because you do need you you need you can't just flip a switch because for example, you know, since this deal was struck, there have been all sorts of business agreements which was re- which were reached with the, the government of Iran, their central bank, and also a lot of businesses in Iran, um, which with, with, for example, businesses in the U.S. So you, you need a little bit of a a little bit of a time lag to sort of unravel, you know, these these business deals. You know, if you've got a loan going one way or the other or a contract that's going one way or the other, you, you can't just say, okay, well, we're immediately imposing these sanctions again, and starting tomorrow it's now illegal to continue to sell those goods that you promised to sell for, for the sake of argument. So you can't just say that automatically. So there's going to be a time lag. What some people are arguing is if the president does – Put in a time lag. This is going to be three months. This is going to be six months. The, the intention will be to, I don't know, give an incentive to negotiate a, a better deal. That this is what's going to happen six months from now. So if, if everybody wants this U.S. part of the sanctions not to be put in place, you're, you're going to have to, you know, come to the table and let's deal with some of the concerns that we have. Um, I, it's... It's an interesting strategy if that's how it, it all plays out. But but keep in mind, for people who sell President Trump short, I do not believe that we would have had a summit and at least a potential peace conference going on between North and South Korea 
were it not for the hard line that President Trump took. Uh, I, I, I just I don't believe that. And again, I, I don't know if we're going to have peace in our time on the Korean Peninsula. I don't know. But I, I think a lot of the stuff that's moving on is is in that direction. Okay, President Trump is just coming to the microphone now. We'll hear what he has to say. The Iranian regime is the leading state sponsor of terror. It exports dangerous missiles, fuels conflicts across the Middle East, and supports terrorist proxies and militias such as Hezbollah, Hamas, the Taliban, and al-Qaeda. Over the years, Iran and its proxies have bombed American embassies and military installations, murdered hundreds of American service members, and kidnapped, imprisoned, and tortured American citizens. The Iranian regime has funded its long reign of chaos and terror by plundering the wealth of its own people. No action taken by the regime has been more dangerous than its pursuit of nuclear weapons and the means of delivering them. In 2015, the previous administration joined with other nations in a deal regarding Iran's nuclear program. This agreement was known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. In theory, the so-called Iran deal was supposed to protect the United States and our allies from the lunacy of an Iranian nuclear bomb, a weapon that will only endanger the survival of the Iranian regime. In fact, the deal allowed Iran to continue enriching uranium and, over time, reach the brink of a nuclear breakout. The deal lifted crippling economic sanctions on Iran in exchange for very weak limits on the regime's nuclear activity and no limits at all on its other malign behavior, including its sinister activities in Syria, Yemen, and other places all around the world. In other words, at the point when the United States had maximum leverage This disastrous deal gave this regime, and it's a regime of great terror, many billions of dollars, some of it in actual cash, a great embarrassment to me as a citizen and to all citizens of the United States. A constructive deal could easily have been struck at the time, but it wasn't. At the heart of the Iran deal, was a giant fiction that a murderous regime desired only a peaceful nuclear energy program. Today, we have definitive proof that this Iranian promise was a lie. Last week, Israel published intelligence documents long concealed by Iran, conclusively showing the Iranian's regime and its history of pursuing nuclear weapons. The fact is, this was a horrible, one-sided deal that should have never, ever been made. It didn't bring calm, it didn't bring peace, and it never will. In the years since the deal was reached, Iran's military budget has grown by almost 40%, while its economy is doing 
very badly. After the sanctions were lifted, the dictatorship used its new funds to build nuclear-capable missiles, support terrorism, and cause havoc throughout the Middle East and beyond. The agreement was so poorly negotiated that even if Iran fully complies, the regime can still be on the verge of a nuclear breakout in just a short period of time. The deal's sunset provisions are totally unacceptable. If I allowed this deal to stand, there would soon be a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Everyone would want their weapons ready by the time Iran had theirs. Making matters worse, the deal's inspection provisions lack adequate mechanisms to prevent, detect, and punish cheating and don't even have the unqualified right to inspect many important locations, including military facilities. Not only does the deal fail to halt Iran's nuclear ambitions, but it also fails to address the regime's development of ballistic missiles that could deliver nuclear warheads. Finally, the deal does nothing to constrain Iran's destabilizing activities, including its support for terrorism. Since the agreement, Iran's bloody ambitions have grown only more brazen. In light of these glaring flaws, I announced last October that the Iran deal must either be renegotiated or terminated. Three months later, on January 12th, I repeated these conditions. I made clear that if the deal could not be fixed, the United States would no longer be a party to the agreement. Over the past few months, we have engaged extensively with our allies and partners around the world, including France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. We have also consulted with our friends from across the Middle East. We are unified in our understanding of the threat and in our conviction that Iran must never acquire a nuclear weapon. After these consultations, it is clear to me that we cannot prevent an Iranian nuclear bomb under the decaying and rotten structure of the current agreement. The Iran deal is defective at its core. If we do nothing, we know exactly what will happen. In just a short period of time, the world's leading state sponsor of terror, will be on the cusp of acquiring the world's most dangerous weapons. Therefore, I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. In a few moments, I will sign a presidential memorandum to begin reinstating U.S. nuclear sanctions on the Iranian regime. We will be instituting the highest level of economic sanction. Any nation that helps Iran in its quest for nuclear weapons could also be strongly sanctioned by the United States. America will not be held hostage to nuclear blackmail. We will not allow American cities 
to be threatened with destruction. And we will not allow a regime that chants death to America to gain access to the most deadly weapons on Earth. Today's action sends a critical message. The United States no longer makes empty threats. When I make promises, I keep them. In fact, at this very moment, Secretary Pompeo is on his way to North Korea in preparation for my upcoming meeting with Kim Jong-un. Plans are being made. Relationships are building. Hopefully a deal will happen. And with the help of China, South Korea, and Japan, a future of great prosperity and security can be achieved for everyone. As we exit the Iran deal, we will be working with our allies to find a real, comprehensive, and lasting solution to the Iranian nuclear threat. This will include efforts to eliminate the threat of Iran's ballistic missile program, to stop its terrorist activities worldwide, and to block its menacing activity across the Middle East. In the meantime, powerful sanctions will go into full effect. If the regime continues its nuclear aspirations, it will have bigger problems than it has ever had before. Finally, I want to deliver a message to the long-suffering people of Iran. The people of America stand with you. It has now been almost 40 years since this dictatorship seized power and took a proud nation hostage. Most of Iran's 80 million citizens have sadly never known an Iran that prospered in peace with its neighbors and commanded the admiration of the world. But the future of Iran belongs to its people. They are the rightful heirs to a rich culture and an ancient land, and they deserve a nation that does justice to their dreams, honor to their history, and glory to God. Iran's leaders will naturally say that they refuse to negotiate a new deal. They refuse, and that's fine. I'd probably say the same thing if I was in their position. But the fact is, they are going to want to make a new and lasting deal, one that benefits all of Iran, and the Iranian people. When they do, I am ready, willing, and able. Great things can happen for Iran, and great things can happen for the peace and stability that we all want in the Middle East. There has been enough suffering, death, and destruction. Let it end now. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. That's uh, President Trump announcing that he is going to be withdrawing from the Iranian nuclear deal. He is not going to be taking questions. At least I don't believe he's going to be taking questions. Let's take a very quick break. I will tell you something. I, I understand that uh, some people's eyes glaze over when it comes to foreign policy questions, but I think he's, I think he's doing the right thing. All right, we'll take a quick break. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think he is doing the right 
thing. Um, I guess the devil is a little bit in the details with, you know, how soon will the sanctions be imposed? But Iran does pose a threat, and I think it's almost impossible to argue that the deal has not has not been an effective one. Right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Is the president doing the right thing? We'll be back with your calls in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The world's largest musical festival is right around the corner, and Wisconsin's Morning News wants to send you there all this week. Gene Miller and the Morning Crew are giving away four packs of tickets to the big gig, and you don't have to win. If you don't win the tickets, don't forget to come out anyways to see WTMJ at the Gruber Law Office's Sports Zone. We will be broadcasting live throughout the entire run of the festival. If you're just tuning in, President Trump announcing just a couple moments ago that as he promised on the campaign trail, he is going to have the U.S. withdraw from the Iran nuclear accord that was negotiated by John Kerry and Barack Obama. Um, the point the president is making is the deal, he says, has been a disaster. Um, the U.S. and other nations eased sanctions. Iran has taken the money and used it to build their military up, continue their process of terrorism, and continue to try to move towards developing nuclear weapons. He says he's going to be reinstituting sanctions. How soon he does it is a factor that we don't know. 136, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, this is going to be controversial, and if you listen to Talking Head shows tonight, actually, my advice is listen to Brewers instead on WTMJ. But if you listen to them, there's going to be heads exploding all over. But what President Trump is saying is he thinks this is a bad deal, um, that Iran has been violating it, that the money that they are making as a result of reduced sanctions, they're putting into their military, they're using it to support terrorist activities, they're not doing it to benefit Iranian citizens, and that they're continuing to develop a nuclear capability which threatens the entire Mideast. And he says, look, I... I, I want to bring that to stop, so I'm going to reinstitute sanctions. They're going to be apparently phased in over a three- to six-month period, but um, countries, including European countries, that do business with Iran, with Iran um, they risk running afoul of the U.S. banking system. Now, in some respects, what President Trump is doing isolates the U.S. On the other hand, it could also set the U.S. up as being a leader and provide perhaps an impetus to renegotiate the deal, which is what I think he's trying to accomplish. Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Thanks for waiting. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. What do you um, think? Well, I, wait, first of all, full disclosure, I'm not, I'm not really a, a super Trump fan. I'm, I'm a one side of Trump, I am. The, mm-hmm. other, the other side, the, predictive, the unpredictable side, I'm not really right. on this the, the chaos um, president. Yeah, I understand yeah, exactly that. where you're coming from. Yeah. yeah. But that said, I think, what I like is the fact that he's finally bringing us back from being a paper tiger back to an actual tiger. Mm-hmm. That that's the part that is encouraging. It's kind of like um, he's everybody knows he's not screwing around. So that's well, well, right. I mean, when right, and unlike other presidents who say, "Okay, I'm going to draw a line in the sand, don't step over it," and then when people step over and kick sand in our face. Uh, we, we do nothing. Yeah, I mean, clearly, I think he, the president, is convinced that this deal is not working. It is extremely one-sided. Um, Iran is kind of thumbing well, they, their nose at us. Our face. Yeah. I mean, they, I mean, literally, we dropped off, what, money in, uh, what, literally, 
what I was like five or six different currencies in, right. in a plane or whatever, dropped it off in the middle of the night and that type of thing out, you know, on pallets. And then they're out there chanting the next day, death to America. It's kind of like, what? Well, exactly. And I think, you know, I mean, the concern is if we agree with the premise that Iran is and continues to be a rogue nation, these deals, this deal back in 2015 has not stopped it. Rather, it has emboldened Iran. Why wouldn't you try to do something to, again, you know, rein that whole thing in? Now, thanks for the call, Dave. 414-799-1620. Mike and Lumira. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Um, Hi, Mike. My thoughts on it are... A little bit like, you know, we look back over the last two weeks at what Israel did. And, you know, what uh, Netanyahu said was, hey, we have this information. We're not going to sit back and wait. And, you know, we usually uh, work in lockstep foreign policy um, to protect Israel. And I think, you know, as the linchpin of the Mideast, this really, it was, you know, in the cards. We knew this was going to happen after uh, Bibi said what he did. Right. Right. And, and again, you know, and you understand. Right, and it's if you accept as if you accept as the premise that Iran does continue to pose a danger to that entire region, I, I think I think something has to be done, and this is I think the first step towards doing that, and hopefully trying to bring Iran you know back around. But so far, this 2015 deal didn't do it. Yeah, and and I think a lot of it has it really hinges on what's been going on in Syria. You know the the. Israeli Defense Force have everything in our arsenal up to nuclear arms. Right. Whether people want to believe it or not, they have everything that, and we, you know, and we'll defend them. So when you know they're about as serious as anyone can be about the defense of their country because they're so small and they're always fighting. So they know that they have to be quite uh, every every threat has to be taken seriously. And when we came on and said that, and I told people, I said. You know what's coming next? And people said, "Oh, what are you talking about? You, you, you speak English." And I was like, "No, you just aren't paying attention." Close yeah. enough. No, I, no. I, thanks for calling. And you're, and you're starting to see that. And I, I will tell you. I mean, I go back to, for I, I mean, I go back to what's going on in North Korea. You know, you have had president after president, Republican and Democrat, who've kind of been played for chumps by North Korea. Um, now you get President Trump, and you know he, he's talking tough. And again, I don't know if they're going to be able to cut a piece of cord or not. I, I don't know that. But at least you're, you're talking about that. For people who might not be familiar, a couple of the callers have made reference to cash payments. Um, let me kind of give you a history review on that. January 16th, 2016, the same day four American de- detainees, people who had been held hostage by the Iranian government, were released. A jumbo jet carrying $400 million in euros, Swiss francs, and other currencies landed in Tehran. The money um, was purportedly partial payment for an outstanding claim by Iran for U.S. military equipment that was never delivered. Yeah. Soon afterwards, $1.3 billion in cash followed. Um, the Wall Street Journal reported the head of the Justice Department's National Security Division objected, said it would look like a ransom payment. State Department, this would be Obama State Department officials, insisted negotiations over the claims and detainees were not connected, connected, but came together at the same time with the cash payment used as leverage to ensure the release of detainees. 
Um, yeah, right. And then, of course, it's questionable about whether or not this was even legal. But, yeah, that's what people are referring to. Iran is holding U.S. citizens as hostage. And in order to get their release, the same day they're released, mysteriously, you know, $1.7 total billion in assets are, are transferred. I mean, this is the type of regime that you're dealing with. Guess I, I, again, I look at this, and time will tell. But I, I think what we're doing now doesn't wasn't working. A lot of countries were willing to just kind of stick their head in the sand. And this does cause economic problems for some of these other countries. Because, like I say, they will now have three to six months to wrap up certain dealings with Iran or else or else they're going to lose access to the U.S. banking system. Could that potentially isolate the U.S. in some regards? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Here's my guess as to how this all plays out. I think before all is said and done, you end up getting new deals negotiated, sort of like what President Trump was talking about with the tariffs. He comes out, he announces that he's going to go do the tariffs, and then he starts to impose, he sort of pulls back on some of that stuff, you know, giving certain allies time to negotiate different deals and things like that. I think that's how it's ultimately going to play out. Let me see. What's it doing with the market right now? Stock market um, down. It was down before the announcement. It was down about 40. The Dow now it's down 133. So the, the market reacting slightly negatively to that. But at least in the initial stages, not bottoming out. Um, I, I think some of this is kind of baked into the cake anyways. I Again, I understand the talking heads are going to criticize the president. I think I think he's on to something. I think it was a bad deal. I think it wasn't working, and I think he deserves some credit for trying to move the ball down the field. It's 144. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 149, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Lena Taylor, State Senator Lena Taylor, is an absolute, complete, and total train wreck. There's just no other way to describe this. Now, this is not the first time incidents like this have happened, but everybody's been focusing on what happened a couple weeks ago at the Wells Fargo Bank. She goes in, gets into this dust-up with an African-American teller and ends up you know, screaming a racial slur at him. She's now saying, well, okay, yes, I did, in fact, say this or some variation of this, but I... You know, when, when, you know, people of color are talking to each other, it's not viewed that way. Well, you know, good, good luck with, with pursuing that. Instead of, again, the easiest way to have handled this entire dust-up would have been for her to say, you know what, I was having a bad day. I got angry. I'm sorry. I, I just, I shouldn't have done this. I apologize. I apologize to the Milwaukee police. I apologize to my constituents. Really sorry. And you get a disorderly conduct ticket, you pay the $195 and you get on with your life. Instead, she's lawyered up. She's in this state of denial trying to justify this. She's playing the race card. Oh, this is what happens when you have, you know, uh, progressive African-American politicians, etc. No, it's it's what happens when you end up behaving like an out-of-control jerk in public. That That's this. And instead of just taking responsibility and, and moving on, you know, this, this ends up getting dragged out. And, and that's, that's the example of a train wreck. Well, it's kind of even worse. What happened today, and Eric Bilstadt was just telling you about it, she, um, committee assignments are handled by the, the leaders of the party in the state senate or the state assembly, right? That's the one who, who gets, Robin Voss, for example, is the one who gets to put Republicans on different committees and, um, for the state in, in the assembly. 
for and uh, Fitzgerald Scott Fitzgerald has the right in the in the state assembly in state senate for Republicans. Uh, Jennifer Schilling is the one who decides. She's a Democrat from the Cross. She's a Senate Minority Leader. So the report is today that she has now um, bounced Lena Taylor from the legislature's Budget Committee, which is kind of a prestigious committee. Here's the way the Journal Sentinel reports it. The top Democrat in the state Senate removed Senator Lena Taylor from the legislature's Budget Committee Tuesday after Taylor used a racial insult at a bank. Okay, that's it. But here's the other dazzling detail. And disclosed one of her former employees, this would be one of Taylor's former employees, was paid $80,000 without having to do any work. Not a bad gig if you can get it, huh? Gru, who is producing the show today and always, you're wondering how you can get to get that deal from Scripps, huh? All right. You take that gig, sure. Taylor, a Milwaukee Democrat, issued a statement Tuesday defending her actions in the employee dispute and announcing she had been removed from the Joint Finance Committee. Senator Minority, Senate Minority Leader Jennifer Schilling made the call to take Taylor off the committee, according to Senate records. Taylor did not name the former employee or provide details about the incident, but called the employee a disgruntled employee who was both unable and in some instances unwilling to meet the requirements of the job. She said that the employee received an $80,000, $80,000 no-show, no-work arrangement. Sorting out the dispute took nearly a year, but should have been wrapped up in 80 days, she said in her statement. Um, who knows, you know, what, who knows what, what that is? Can some employee, 80000 bucks, no-show, no-work, disgruntled employee, huh? I don't know, Gru. Don't you go being a disgruntled employee, you know, even if you think you're going to get 80 grand out of it. But again, you look at this stuff and, and it screams just one thing after another. It just screams train wreck, which goes back to my basic premise. I understand we all have bad days. We all get mad. Some people, some of us have more impulse control than others. But all right, you have one of these bad days. And instead of don't you know who I am and I'm going to get a lawyer and we're going to fight this and, you know, this is just, People talk to the other people like this all the time. No, they, they don't. Um, and I disagree with the police and the witnesses and all these things. Instead of doing that, maybe just say, I'm, I'm sorry, and move on. Is that too much to expect? All right, we have got a number of interesting stories that I want to talk to you about in the remaining hour of the program, including we know in some school systems that Johnny and Joni can't read. Can they tell time? Stick around. 154, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 210. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. All right. I guess a semi-PG-13 warning and, and definitely an ick factor warning over the, about this next story. A little, Eric goes and smiling. Well, it, it, is, it, it's, it, it's an, it is an interesting story, but there, there is an ick factor. There is Oregon State, the university, baseball is big at Oregon State. Um, you know, college baseball, baseball players at Oregon State are kind of treated like star basketball players and star football players would be treated at other universities. It is a very big deal. The star pitcher on the Oregon State bas- baseball team is a guy named Luke Heimlich, kind of like the Heimlich maneuver. He's 22 years old. 
Last year, um, his pitches were nearly unhittable. He had an earned run average of about of 0.76. And um, you know, in Major League Baseball, if you've got an earned run average under three, meaning that for every nine innings you give up, you know, three or less earned runs, that, that's that's very, very good. His earned run average was 0.76. This year, he's 11 and one, 11 wins, one loss. His earned run average is around 3.0. But, but still, he, he's a star, star pitcher. And you would think under normal circumstances, he also throws left-handed, he would have a great future in Major League Baseball. Last year, he declared himself eligible for the draft, and no Major League Baseball team took him. No Major League Baseball team took him, despite the fact that he's got an earned run average last year of 0.76, pitching for you know one of the premier college baseball programs in the country. And, and the question became, well, what's going on here? Well, it, it turns out that this this actually wasn't known to the public, except through a little quirk that I'll tell you about in a minute. But back when Heimlich, now he's 22, back when he was 15, he's, he's from Seattle, he molested his six-year-old niece. And this is where you get the ick factor. Apparently what happened uh, is that the two of them were alone together in a room, and without going into too much detail, he... Um, pulled her underwear down, and then began touching her, etc. She told him to stop, but he wouldn't. All right, so this got reported. He pled guilty and was, in fact, convicted. Now, um, he was sentenced. Let me see. I've got the sentence here. Plea deal. Um, one of the charges was dropped. He was placed on two years probation, took court-ordered classes, and had to register for five years as a level one sex offender, a designation the state of Washington uses for someone considered of low risk to the community and unlikely to be a repeat offender. He also had to write a letter apologizing to his niece. Now, nobody might have ever known about this except for the fact that um, he was part of, you know, he had to register as a state as a sex offender for a few period of time. And what happened is when he moved, he failed to update his whereabouts, so he got a citation, and that made this all public. For his part now, he says, I know I pled guilty. I know I said I did it, but it never happened. <laughs> he said it, 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 it never happened. I pled guilty, but it never happened. And then, of course, somebody says, well, why, why did you do this? He said, well, I, we just wanted to get it over with. And, you know, we wanted to, to do it for the sake of family relations. Okay, he's accused of molesting the niece, so we're all going to get together and be happy after this, is accused. He said, right, we just I talked to my mom, we just wanted to get this all behind it. But that happened, the incident happened when he was 15, he pled guilty in this plea deal at 16, and now he is this star pitcher. Well, over the last couple weeks, it, it's just come out. Like I say, they, they've now found the records, and this matter is now going public, Although a lot of people think folks in Major League Baseball knew about it before, and this is causing a lot of teams to keep away from him, you know, not touch him with a 10-foot pole. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here is my question. How would you feel about someone with this record convicted of doing something like this when they were 15 years old 
how would you feel about them playing for your favorite team? I mean, if all of a sudden the Brewers drafted this guy and got him in the system, you know, how would you feel about Luke Heimlich, given what he acknowledged, what at least he was convicted of doing, that he now denies, but convicted of doing back when he was 16, how would you feel six, seven years later about him playing for the Brewers? Or if you're a Cubs fan, playing for your beloved Cubs or the Yankees or whatever. Um, is this the type of situation which should perhaps be disqualifying, um, certainly in the court of public opinion, or he's paid his dues, um, he's a good pitcher, you don't want to ruin his life because of something that he now denies he did, but he was convicted of doing seven years ago. 414-799-1620, how would you feel if this guy were drafted and selected to play for, again, your favorite team? Would you like to see him in a Brewer's uniform if he was good enough? Or is this the type of thing which you say, nope, there's no coming back from this. No, you should not be playing Major League Baseball, regardless of how good you are. 414-799-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss next. 216, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. 218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, the mother of the six-year-old who was... Molested by the 22-year-old baseball pitcher um, six years ago, um, she says she's adamant that um, he, he never be he should never be allowed to play, not in the college, not in the pros. For her daughter, she said the case will only go away when Luke is out of the light. If he makes it to the big leagues, he will be in the light forever. Any accomplishment he makes will shine the light on her. Could be 50 years from now, he gets inducted into the Hall of Fame. They will bring up this story. Um, I don't think he's necessarily a terrible person. I think he did a terrible thing. For his part, he, again, maintains, yes, I pled guilty. Yes, I was convicted. Um, but nothing really happened. I don't understand where this is coming from. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I- I'm sorry, and maybe this is just me being too incredibly judgmental. I would hate if the Milwaukee Brewers would draft this guy. I, I just, there are some things I just... I don't think you necessarily come back from and molesting a six-year-old girl when you're 15 is one of those things. Let's start with Jeff and Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. I'm very glad that he's not a brewer, too. If he was, I would probably still go to games, but I would definitely not cheer for him, and I would want the vendors in the stands to sell anti-nausea medicine. Yeah, it's just... um you know, it, it's it's just it, that that's the that's the type of thing. It, it just it's just kind of beyond the ick factor. There's, I mean, and I understand there's the notion of rehabilitation, and I understand that there's people, including professional athletes, who get caught with prostitutes or get caught with guns in their car or things like that. But there, there's something about being convicted of molesting your six year old niece when you're 15 that it just makes it hard hard to cheer for you moving forward. Yeah, stuff like that is just so hard to get past. I don't even know if I'd be physically able to clap my hands when he came up to the plate. Um, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Okay, now let's see. Um, total ick fact. Here's a text. But I looked into this, and there were reasons he pled guilty, including not missing a year of baseball. Okay, well, yes, that's that, that's what he says. We we had we, we there were re- I denied it. We had reasons for doing this, including trying to maintain family harmony and didn't want to miss a year of baseball. So I pled guilty to molesting a six-year-old. Um, I, I'm sorry, I just I, I I can't 
I can't go behind that. And again, I'm, am I saying that, you know, legally he shouldn't be allowed to? Well, well, no, but I am saying from a public relations standpoint, let's, and sports is a public relations thing as well. I would be very disappointed if the Brewers decided that somebody convicted of doing something like this. And candidly, I, I will tell you, having worked in the legal system for a long time, that this, well, I didn't do it, but I pled guilty just to make it go away. That that doesn't carry much weight with me. I mean, pleas of guilty, you know, there's a process to establish that they're done knowingly and voluntary, voluntarily. Pleading guilty to something like this, a few years later saying, well, I didn't do it really, that eh, doesn't carry much weight. Um, Katie in Burlington. Katie, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Hello. I want everyone who's listening right now to imagine what a six-year-old child looks like. Someone you know, someone at a school, or someone at a park. Your niece. This was his niece. <laughs> imagine your niece. It takes a truly sick, sick individual to victimize a six-year-old child. And just because they have a pigeon arm, these are the kind of people that we lock up, that we treat like lepers in society because they've got some serious concerning issues. I don't care if he is the most phenomenal athlete on earth. This is not someone I want to associate any kind of team that I root for, any kind of team I take my children to go see. No way. What about the argument, Katie, that he's he's paid his dues? This was, he's now 22, you know, this happened when he was, and he denies it, but it, it happened when he was 15, um, do, do we do we have, I don't know, can, can you rehabilitate? Should we be able to forgive? Pay your dues? I mean, really? What is the mom saying? She's the ultimate say as an advocate for her child. And if she's saying, this disgusts me, no way. I think we yeah. are, we owe common sense and dignity. We owe that, that family the respect not to. Now, again, can you legally keep them from it? No. Um, but but, it, but I, at the same I, time, I, General Matt, no, I mean, thanks for going, no, Mar, I mean, at the same time, Mark Atanasio and David Stearns can make a decision, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm using them as examples because I know them both, but I mean, you know, Major League General Managers can make, can, can make this call, as they always do, and they can say, you know what, um, we, based on this background and this record, we know we don't want convicted child molesters on our team. You know, they, they can do that. Now, they, if they decide they want to draft them, that, that's fine. But I can't imagine too many teams doing this. And I, I actually have to imagine that there's going to be a huge fan backlash. I understand that he's still popular on the Oregon State campus. But, you know, as more and more people find out about this, I got to believe that, you know, if you think you've got a nightmare for the players who get caught, you know, using steroids, imagine what it's going to be a nightmare, you know, from the, the reaction of fans, both your fans and opposing fans. If you've got a, somebody taking the mound who was convicted of sexually assaulting his six-year-old niece, even though he now says, well, I, I didn't really do it. I just pled guilty to make it go away. Hmm. Give me a break. 225, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Four more states head to the polls for midterm elections. Will indications of a blue wave continue? Gene Miller has a full recap at 621 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. Actually, as I was mentioning earlier, the, the real interesting thing um there are there are Republican primaries for U.S. Senate in West Virginia and in Indiana tonight, um, and that's 
This is what you're going to watch because you know, one of the things we have seen that has just made my head explode over the last couple of years in actually, you know, going back about six years is Republicans have this amazing ability to completely and totally shoot themselves in, in the foot. I remember six years of Harry Reid out of Nevada being the last six years he was in the Senate used to drive me crazy because he shouldn't have won. The only reason he won is that Republicans in Nevada in the Republican primary selected the one Republican candidate in the state who couldn't beat him. You know, you had the same thing. Republicans have lost the Senate seat in Alabama. Some people say this is evidence of a blue wave or whatever. Well, no, it's because they picked a guy named Roy Moore who was a lunatic, just an absolute lunatic, arguably a child molester. I don't know if that was true or not, but my God, couldn't you find somebody that had just slightly less baggage than somebody who had been on the state Supreme Court and impeached twice or bumped off the state Supreme Court twice? Well, that's what's going to play out tonight again. In West Virginia, there's a candidate running. His name is Don Blankenship. He's a former um, executive at, at Peabody Coal. He was convicted of conspiring to violate mine safety regulations, and he's also way out there on on issues, and they think he's leading in the polls. Trump has now come out, the president has come out and said, don't vote for him because he cannot win. Now, will voters in West Virginia do it? I don't know. Same thing is true, you know, in, in Indiana where they have, again, some of these sort of maverick candidates that are running against some of the so-called establishment Republicans, but the maverick candidates have ton of tons of baggage and sort of far-out opinions to the point that, again, Republicans, you shouldn't lose a Senate seat in Indiana. You should pick the one up in West Virginia. But if the Republican voters in the primary pick the wrong candidate, and by wrong I mean the candidate's got no chance of winning, it's going to be an electoral disaster. So that's what you want to watch for. You know, are we going to, we being Republicans, going to lose our minds again tonight in nominating candidates who cannot win in November? 234, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Uh, stock market almost all the way back uh, after President Trump made the announcement that he was backing out of the Iran nuclear pact. The market was down at one point in time, about 130 points. Now it's down five, which is essentially breaking even. So don't know where it's going to end up. It won't close for another 20 minutes, but that's sort of where it is now. All right. I I found this intriguing. Gru, my millennial producer, do you wear a wristwatch? You do not. Okay. When you need to know what time it is, how do you tell, how, how do you do that? How do you check on that? You have a phone or there is a clock. All right, now let me ask you the tough question. Can you tell time? So you, you look at a clock and, you know, when the big hand is in one place and the little hand is in the other place, and I know it sounds like a stupid question, but you, you can tell that. Okay. He says, yes, he can, even though he doesn't wear the wristwatch and he, he relies on the display, the, the analog clock. Now, the reason I, I ask is because uh, there is a growing recognition, or at least a belief, that people below a certain age, number one, can't tell time. And, and by tell time, I mean that, that they can't read a clock. And number two, that they don't need to read a, a clock. Here, here's here's part of the story. Now, this comes from Great Britain, um, but apparently what, what is happening is in Great Britain, high school students have to sit for standardized tests. 
and their A level exams, and and how well you do on these exams depend on depends on you know where where you get to go after that. Schools apparently have a, a push to make it easier for them to do that. Exam rooms used to have um, analog clocks, you know, the the regular the hands and stuff like that, you know, where the big hand is on the two and the little hand is on the four or whatever. Um, there is a push to replace all the analog uh, clocks with digital clocks so students can keep track of their time. Um, here's what one of the teachers says. Nearly everything that kids have is digital, so youngsters are just exposed to time being given digitally anywhere. They say that uh, having an analog clock in the room could cause unnecessary stress because um, some kids don't know how to read analog clocks. In 2014, a teacher in Arizona said, look, maybe I think it's time for us to retire the analog clock because people just don't use them anymore. They use their smartphones. They use their smartwatches. Everything is digital. Who looks at a clock to tell time anymore? And I will say this. I am sitting in, in this radio studio right now where I am bombarded with things telling me the time. In front of me, I've got a, a digital display, 238. To my right, I've got this thing with these big, big old red uh, numerals, 23820. Now, up on the wall, to my left, there is an old-fashioned analog clock. And I will tell you, I, I never look at it anymore. But when I look at it, I can tell that... You know, that's the time. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it time to retire the old analog clocks? Has that gone the way of Blockbuster Video and the dinosaur, that people just don't read them anymore? Is it kind of like cursive writing? You know, people, you know, a lot of schools don't teach cursive writing anymore. Is is the idea, do we just not need it anymore? Should we not spend any time trying to teach kids how to tell time on the old-fashioned clock face, you know, because they don't wear wristwatches and they don't look at those type of clocks? Should we go digital? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I kid you not, that's what they're talking about doing in Great Britain because they're deciding kids just don't tell time. They don't know how to read it. We don't want them sitting for these exams. These are high school kids. We don't want them sitting for exams where there is this time pressure, and they, they might freak out because they have trouble telling time. So instead, we'll just put the digital clock up there. Is it time to do away with analog clocks? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Because, I mean, my guess is that there is one or more generations of people I mean, I'm talking about this rich wristwatch thing, and they're saying, "What is this wristwatch thing that you were talking about, Jeff?" I mean, we don't. Why would you wear? Why would you wear something on your wrist that tells you the, the time when you have to look at the clock face when you've just got when you've just got the uh, your phone or you've got a smartwatch that just prints it out digitally? Why do you have to make that thing? Oh, it's uh, two forty. Let's start with Anthony in Brookfield. Anthony, you're on WTMJ. Hello. I think we should absolutely keep the analog clock. I mean, you got Rolex. They're they're not going to go digital. They haven't yet. The the mechanics of a of a, a digital a regular analog clock is always going to work. You think there's watches. You don't even have to rely on the battery. 
Right. So I, you know, it's, it's far better. We should, we should still use sundials in some ways, too. Well, I mean, that, well, that see, that, I mean, actually, I've got a text from Debbie who says, you don't need a sundial anymore either. Would, would you think we should have sundials? I mean, have, I, I guess that's a question. Ha, has an analog clock on the way yes. of the sundial? I'm sorry, what? For, for nostalgic purposes, yes. It's unique. You have to, if, if we lose our history of how we use the keep, uh, keep time, you know, what are, what are our children actually going to know? They're going right. to be dumb. They're going to be idiots. Well, well, thanks. I mean, I, I guess, I mean, well, at the same time, you know, once, once people used, um, we, we used to use abacuses. You know, we, there, there was all sorts of things that we, we used to do. Now, um, you know, we've talked about this before in different contexts. I mean, uh, people don't do math in their heads anymore. I mean, I, I've told these stories before where I, I've run into high school kids, God bless them, you know, who, you know, are, are at the golf course at the turn. And, you know, the hot dog is four bucks and the Gatorade is a dollar seventy five. And, okay, four dollars, a dollar seventy five, five seventy five. You give them a ten dollar bill and it just freaks them out. They can't make change. Um, but the argument is, well, they don't need to make change in their head. They don't need to be able to count that stuff up because everybody's got the calculators now. So do we need to teach people how to add and subtract? Do we need to teach people how to, you know, tell time reading the old-fashioned clock face? Um, let's talk to Larry in Brookfield. Larry, here in WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I think it's ridiculous. They should learn to read an analog clock. Um they should also learn to do math instead of using calculators. Mm-hmm. They should also learn spelling instead of using spell check. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, at what point in time do you say, well, we're going to put in digital clocks, we're, all, we're going to issue them all calculators, show them how to use those, and we're just going to tell them, use spell check. We don't need to teach you anything. Well, it, it, it is, and I guess, and then... Okay, what happens? I mean, I, I I was telling the story, you know, yet about yesterday about how the, the the guys that do the lawn stuff in the area where I live they they cut my cable. So I mean, so like let, now last night, okay, so didn't didn't have cable TV, didn't have the internet. I mean, what happens when when the power goes out and and that digital clock doesn't work? You know, maybe maybe that wristwatch that you wind still does. I mean, is it, I guess I look at this and say, isn't it good to have this as a backup if nothing else? Well, exactly. I mean, you could say, well. We won't do geography because you can Google that. Yeah. Well, because you can Google that as well. Well, let, let's not have paper calendars anymore. Somebody text that. You know, I mean, everybody's got a everybody's got a calendar on their smartphone. So, you know, why 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 should you have those things that you put up on the wall and mark stuff off? I mean, is is that antiquated too? It's ridiculous. Thanks for the call. I appreciate. It. We continue this for just a couple more calls. If you're on the line, please hold on. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. And it does raise these kind of larger points that I'm interested in. But in, in Great Britain, they are they are moving away from the old analog clocks. Analog clocks being the big hand is on the twelve and the little hand is on the six. On the six um, towards digital clocks. Everything's going to be digital because kids don't know how to read analog clocks. In other words, they can't tell time. Does that matter? It's 244. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 247, Jeff Wagner, 620, WTMJ. Lest you think I'm making this up, let me share a text with you. Jeff, I struggle to get my 9- and 14-year-olds to learn how to read a clock. We don't have a digital clock in the family room, and the kids will go to the kitchen to check the time rather than to look at the analog clock. So it, they'll leave the family room where there is the analog clock with the clock face to go into the kitchen to read what the time is. 
and, and that's I don't mean to pick on that particular listener. That's that's the wave of the future that's going on there. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to Bonnie in Franklin. Bonnie, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi um, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I just want to point out that doctors and nurses have to have analog clocks. How can you count the beats per minute of a person's <laughs> pulse while trying to count the beats on the clock? I, I, you well, can't do that. Yeah, you would. You would think that there would be. You would think that there would be uses to that, and that the whole second hands and the stopwatches and things like that. But, but the the truth of the matter is, you know, we kid around and we say, you know, Johnny and Sally can't read and they can't do math, and I don't think they can even tell time anymore, and that doesn't appear to be a big deal. Now, thank, thanks. For, I mean, I, I mean, I, I would just you would think that, and again, I mean, I'm, I'm dating myself, I guess, but I mean, I can remember, I can remember my parents teaching me how to tell time. I, I get all that. And and yes, I mean, I use the digital clocks, and I've got a um, the alarm clock by the side of my bed. It's got the big, you know, digits, the big numbers that you can read in the middle of the night, and that's fine. But I still, I mean, I still rely on my wristwatch as well. Karen in Wauwatosa, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Karen. Well, Jeff, I also think that everyone should be able to read and analog clock, uh, absolutely. And young people should be should should be taught to do that. And then I kind of have a have an idea. Maybe what the English ought to do is just use reading the clock as that you know exam. So <laughs> and he's too dumb uh, or, or foolish to read the analog clock, then he doesn't move you know up in whatever that education system is they have. Yeah, it saves a lot of money. Yeah, well, you know, actually, you know, see, in some respects, I think for like test purposes, I think looking up at a clock might even be a little easier. Like, I'm, I'm looking at the clock now. Okay, it, it's two fifty. It's ten to three. If if you know the, if the test ends at three, you can immediately look at it and process that I, I've got ten minutes left instead of having to do the math. Oh, it's two fifty. I have till three. That means I've got ten minutes. You know, right? It's, it's like you need the thanks to call. You need the calculator. Then okay, how much time do I have left? Um, if I've if it's two fifty and I need ten, oh, that's three o'clock. Nikki in Milwaukee. Nikki, you're in WTMJ. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking, all those high school kids that are going to be taking their you know class trip over to London to see the Buckingham <laughs> Palace and the changing of the Queen's Guard and all that beautiful Big Ben. Stuff. Yeah, it's going to be amazing to look at that big red digital clock up there on <laughs> Big Ben, right? I just I. I, I yeah, or, or let, let's even stay closer to home. What about the Alan Bradley clock? Are we going to digitize that now? Because um, we'll raise generations of people that don't know how to read it. What is that thing? And why do those why do those those hands? They're called hands, and they move around. What does that mean, Dad? What well, does that do mean, Mom? How do you tell some a kid like you have to be home by quarter to six? Well, what, <laughs> why is it a quarter to six? What do you mean? <laughs> right. It doesn't make sense if you're if you're just looking at a digital clock. Yeah, so it, then you have to do math to figure out what a quarter is, and then there's fractions involved. Oh, right, right. And we're making it too we're making it too tough on people nowadays. No, thanks for the call, Nikki. You're right. Um, let's see. Uh, Dana says my kids learn this skill in kindergarten. I find it ridiculous that anyone doesn't. Uh, yeah, that's. But of course, that's that's kind of the the dynamic uh, that's that's out there now. Is that okay? Well. You know the technology has passed it by, and look, I understand. I'm I'm not anti the, the cell phones. As a matter of fact, I, I talk to lots of people who who don't wear the, the who don't wear wristwatches. Of course, now a lot of people have the 
the smart watches on that you know are tied in. You can check your phone and stuff like that. Actually, my wife was asking me if I wanted one of those, and I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, the things that you can like look at your wristwatch and you can see if you know who's who's calling you. And nowadays, you don't even have to. I think they got the new models. You don't even have to have your phone with you and stuff. And so I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm still a little bit of a traditionalist, but I'm certainly enough of a traditionalist to know that I, I, I think that we should still be teaching people. How to Tell Time, just saying. It's 2.52. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk to John McCure, find out what he has on his mind. A lot of news going on in Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.